And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Okay, how many English majors do we have in here? Wait, wait a minute. None? We well, all gonna love the first part of this sermon. Then. <laughs> uh, I want to begin with a grammar question. Okay, what is the indicative mood? The indicative mood. Now, according to dictionary.com, it is noting or pertaining to the mood of the verb used for ordinary objective statements, such as the verb plays in John plays football. Now, the indicative mood leads to indicative statements. As the definition states, these are objective statements that have their basis in reality. In, theo in theology, we talk about indicative statements such as Christ died for the ungodly. We've already seen that. Or if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Or maybe as simple as what John says, God is love. Now, scripturally, uh, indicatives are simply truth statements that the Bible makes that you can take to the bank. Most doctrines are given to us in the form of indicative statements, and they're based on reality. That leads to my second question, grammar question. What is the imperative mood? Very good. You read your thing, didn't you? Or is it not in there? I don't think I put them in the notes. Yeah, yeah. It's a command, right? It's imperative that you do this. Da, da, da. That's where it comes from. Dictionary.com says that it's noting or, noting or pertaining to the mood of the verb used in commands, as in listen or, or go. So uh, imperatives are sure enough recognized as commands in Scripture. For example, Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get, with, get drunk with wine, because this is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. Now, there we have two commands. Do not uh, get drunk with wine and be filled with the Spirit. Now, application often comes to us in Scripture in the form of imperatives. Just think about uh, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. Those are commands. Now, knowing the difference between the indicative statements and the imperative commands, here's my third question for you. How many times, up to this point in the book of Romans, how many times has Paul to told us to do something? How many commands has Paul given us? Is it less than five? More than ten? Zero. That's the answer to that question. The reason I emphasize this is to call attention to really the most significant thing that we see here in verse 11. This verse is a command. It's an exhortation. And it's the first one in the book of Romans. This is the first time in five and a half chapters that Paul has commanded his readers to do anything. And what are they to do? Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Now, the significance of this is that after this first command, other commands follow rather naturally. The next couple of verses have quite a few. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Verse 13, do not present your members uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. 
Now, in our fast-paced society, we're used to getting things quickly, aren't we? Did you know that over half of the homes in America have Amazon Prime? You get free shipping, and you get your stuff in you know, two days or less, generally. Uh, it's kind of how we're wired these days. But that philosophy of life often spills over into our dealing with Scripture. Some people would say, oh, I don't give a rip about doctrine. Just tell me what to do. But Paul, he doesn't think like that. In fact, in his epistles, he often sets forth the doctrine, the things that we should know, well before he ever tells us what we are to do or the application. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, they're set up that way. Romans, the book that we're in now, has 11 chapters that is primarily doctrine. Then he has four chapters of application, and then another chapter of closing, of greetings. Well, let me ask you this. Was Paul interested in the spiritual growth of the church at Rome? Well, of course he was. But he knew that there was no use in rushing ahead to tell them how to live the Christian life until he had fully instructed them on what God had done for them in Christ Jesus. Now, this is because the work of God in Christ is foundational to everything else about Christianity. If you don't get this, you're going to be off on an awful lot of other things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we gather this morning just to hear a word from you and uh, pray that uh, your spirit would be here to enlighten our minds, our hearts, our eyes, Father, that we can see, hear, and understand this truth. And uh, Father, embrace it, uh, this fact that we have died to sin and we are alive uh, to God in Christ Jesus. Father, what a difference that will make. Uh, we ask that you would do that this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, what Paul is primarily concerned here with is what theologians call that mystical union between believers and Jesus Christ. Paul's way of communicating it is to say that believers are in Christ or in Jesus or in Him. Paul uses one of those phrases 164 times in his epistles. One of them is in our text, and it's the first time that this exact phrase is used in Romans. Now, it's not the last, but it is the first. I mention this because everything that is ours in Christ is because of God. It has been His work, not ours. We have no more joined ourselves to Jesus in His resurrection than we have died for our own sins. Everything that has been done for us as Christians has been done by God. So, number one, I want to first talk about a bookkeeping term. Paul says, consider yourselves. This word consider is translated variously in different uh, translations as count or reckon or credit. The Greek word is logizomai, and it's related to a more common term you might be familiar with, logos. Uh, and that means word or deed or fact. In classical Greek, logizomai has two main uses. A, it was used in the sense of evaluating a job's, uh, an object's worth, or reckoning up a project's gains or losses. In other words, it was a bookkeeping term. It's carried over into our English with, with, the words, with our words log, logistics, logarithm. Sound familiar? 
Well, legizomai B was also used in philosophy to speak of objection, um, ob objective, or non-emotional reasoning. And again, this is carried over our English words logic and logical. Now, the things that these two uses share in common is that legizomai has to do with reality, with things as they really are. Uh, it has nothing to do with wishful thinking. Now, back in chapter 4, you may remember that I said that this word was used 11 times in chapter 4 alone. In every case, it refers to recognizing something that is factual. Now, the main uh, thought of chapter 4 is our justification before God. Two things are reckoned or credited or counted as factual in that justification. First, our sin is reckoned to Jesus. And he dies for those sins on the cross. Second, his righteousness is reckoned by faith to us, and we are justified. Now, both of those transactions are counted as real and factual. And these two reckonings are the two parallel sides of justification, and their strength comes from knowing that they concern realities. They're not just imaginary transactions. Jesus really did die for our sin. He suffered for our transgressions. Similarly, His righteousness really has been transferred to our account so that God counts us as righteous in Christ. Now, here's what John MacArthur says about this verse, and he's actually kind of fake quoting Paul here. He says, You must know and fully believe what I have just said, uh, verses 1 through 10, or else what I'm about to say will make no sense. The truth that you are spiritually dead to sin and the reality that you are spiritually alive to Christ are not abstract concepts for your finite minds to attempt to verify. They are divinely revealed foundational axioms behind Christian living, apart from which you can never hope to live the holy lives your new Lord demands. End quote. Uh, MacArthur sees these as quite as important. This, this is the foundation for everything else that Paul is going to say. Paul is headed into an area of what we are to do and, and how we are to act. His starting point is our counting on or considering as true what God has already done for us. Now, the key to, to living the Christian life lies in first knowing that God has taken us out of Adam and joined us to Jesus Christ, that we are no longer subject to the reign of sin and death, but have been transferred to the kingdom of God's abounding grace. Now, I want to take a, a look at the two rea realities that are put forth here in verse 11. So, number two, which is the first reality, we're dead to sin. Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sins. We, we've already seen how this is to be taken. I mean, the last two or three sermons have dealt with this. We're not immune to sin or to temptation. We do, in fact, sin, and we are continually tempted. Dead to sin means that we are dead to our old way of life in Adam, and we cannot go back to it. This has been Paul's theme since verse 2, where he began by telling us that we have or we died to sin, past tense. He repeats it in verses 3 and 4. We were baptized into his death and buried with him through baptism into death. Verse 5 says that we have been united with him in his death. 
Verse 6 says, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 7 again makes this point that we died with Christ. Now, all those statements are factual. They describe something that has happened in the past. It's based on that truth that Paul Nell tells us to consider or to count or to reckon ourselves as having died to Christ. In other words, learn to think of yourself as one who has been delivered from sin's realm. Although God would have been perfectly, perfectly justified simply to uh, give man a list of unexplained do's and don'ts in His grace and His compassion, He chose not to be quite so uh, autocratic. The basic reason He reveals as to why men are to live according to His standards, it was summarized in uh, His statement to ancient Israel, Be holy because I am holy. You see, God's law reveals the holiness of God. Now, Scripture is replete with specific commands and standards for conduct, and behind all of them is divine truth, whether it's explicit or implicit, and it's upon those commands that those standards are, found, are founded. Paul has just declared that as believers, we are united with Christ in His death, and through Him, we have had the penalty paid for our sin. He also tells us that we will rise in a re resurrection like that of our Lord. And those two realities, according to verse 4, enable us to walk in newness of life. For a, uh, for a Christian to live out the fullness of that new life in Christ, for him to truly live as a new creation that he is, he must know and believe that he is not what he used to be. He must understand that he's not merely a remodeled sinner, but a remade saint. He must understand that despite his present conflict with sin, he's no longer under sin's tyranny and never will be again. The true understanding of his identity is essential. Is essential. Martin Lloyd-Jones notes six things, six things that this statement, dead to sin, does not mean. And this, this might be helpful. Number one, it has nothing to do with duty. It's concerned with fact. Number two, it's not a command for me to die to sin. How can I be told to do something to myself that has already been done to me? Number three, it doesn't mean that I am to reckon that sin as a force in me is dead. That's simply not true. Sin is a force in me, though it's a force whose effective power has been broken. Number four, uh, it does not mean that sin in me has been eradicated. No, I still sin. Five, it doesn't mean that I am dead to sin as long as I am in the process of gaining mastery over it. That would make the statement refer to something experiential uh, in the present, and it doesn't do that. It refers to a past event. And number six, it doesn't mean that reckoning myself dead to sin makes me dead to sin. That's actually backwards. That's not what Paul is saying, that because we have died to sin, we are now to count on it. Well, number three, uh, let's take a look at the second reality, being alive to God. That second reality, Paul says, we are to consider or count on is that we are now alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Now, this statement completes the parallel to verse 5 where Paul said, If we have been united in Him with a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Now, my question for you is this. Just what does being alive to God in Christ Jesus mean? What changes have taken place? Now, here are a few that you should be aware of. A, we have been reconciled to God. Earlier in Romans, uh, Paul spent a good deal of time talking about a really grim sequence of words, sin, wrath, judgment, and death. But he's lifted us out of that negative downward spiral with a set of positive opposing realities, grace, obedience, righteousness, and eternal life. Justification, which is the main concern of chapter 4, is the means of our reconciliations, how we're made right with God. In Adam, we were enemies of God. Enmity, hostility, they were the norm. But now, having been justified, we have peace with God. We have been reconciled. So that's A. B, we have become new creatures in Christ. Not only is there a new relationship between ourselves and God, which is a wonderful thing in itself, we have also become something that we were not before. Now, here's how Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation, a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Another way of putting this is to speak of regeneration. Or of being born again. That's Jesus' term for it. He told Nicodemus that he must be born again. This was a deliberate backward reference to the way that God breathed into our very first parent, Adam. Before that initial breath, Adam was utterly inert, a, a lifeless form. But when God breathed some of his breath into him, Adam became alive to God and alive to all things. This is what happens when God breathes new spiritual life into us in that work known as regeneration. We become something that we were not before. We have a new life, and that life is now responsive to the one who gave it. Before this, the Bible meant nothing to us when we read it or when, we, when, we, uh, when it was read in our hearing. Now the Bible is alive and interesting we actually hear the voice of God in it. Before this, we had no interest in the people of God. Christians acted in ways that were foreign to us. Their priorities were different from our own. Now, they're our very best friends, our co-workers. Um, we love their company and we can't get enough of them most of the time. Before this, coming to church was just boring. Now, we are alive to God's presence in the service our worship times, uh, sometimes they're the best times of our week. Before this, service to others seemed strange and senseless. Now, it's a great delight. So, in all of these things, what is the difference? Well, the difference is ourselves. God has changed us. We have become alive to Him. We are new creatures. We'll see, we are free from sin's bondage. Before we died to sin and were made alive to God, we were slaves of our sinful natures. Sin was ruining us. Sin was also running us. It was in charge. 
But even when we could see that clearly and acknowledge it, which wasn't very often, we were still unable to do anything about it. We said, I've got to stop drinking. It's killing me. Or I've got to get control of my temper or curb my spending or, or whatever it might be. But we were unable to do it. And even if we did get some control of one important area of our life, perhaps with the help of a, a good therapist or a, you know, a, a good friend or a supportive family, the general downward spiral and destructive drift was unchanged. We really were non passe, non pecare, meaning, that's Latin for not able to not sin. That's how Augustine described it. But being, being made alive to God, we discover that we are now freed from that destructive bondage. We will sin, but not always and not as often. We know that we don't have to sin. We are now passe non peccari, meaning able not to sin. That means we can achieve a real victory. We'll see, um, well, excuse me, D. Uh, we're, we're pressing forward to a sure destiny and to new goals. Before, we weren't. We were trapped by the world. We were trapped by its time-bound evil horizons. Being saved, we know that we are now destined for an eternity of fellowship and bliss with God. Now, we haven't reached it yet. We're not perfect. But we echo within what Paul said in describing his new life in Christ to the Philippians. Here's what Paul says. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Well, E, we can no longer be satisfied with this world and its offerings. And to be sure, the world never really did satisfy us, not at the deepest level. The world, which is finite, cannot adequately fill beings who are made with an infinite capacity for fellowship with and enjoyment of God. But we thought that the world and its values were satisfying. We tried a lot of different things, and we expected to be filled. Now we know that's never going to work. Now we know that with everything that we see and experience in this world around us, though it sometimes has value in a, in a limited um, earthly sense, is nevertheless passing away and one day will be completely forgotten. Our houses are going to be gone. Our electronic devices are going to be gone. Lord, help us. Our cars, our bank accounts, they're going to be gone. Even our Roth IRAs and our 401ks, they're going to be gone. Guys, our golf clubs, our, our, our fishing poles, and our guns are going to be gone too. That's just the reality. So these tangible things no longer have a real hold on us. If we're in Christ, we have died to them. And in their place, we have been made alive to God, who is tangible, although He's invisible. He's eternal, and He's of greater reality and substance than anything else. That we can imagine. That means that we are merely pilgrims here. We are just 
passing through. Kind of like Abraham, we are looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Well, number four, I want to just close with, it says, a man like me, that comes from a verse that I'm going to be reading. Paul says, count yourselves dead, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I think of Nehemiah as an illustration of what this means and of what our attitude should be. If you'll remember, Nehemiah had determined to rebuild the wall of the ruined and abandoned city of Jerusalem, and he was being opposed by the rulers of rival city-states around him. Two of his opponents were Sanballat of Samaria and Geshem the Arab. They invited him to, to a conference to be held about a day's journey away from Jerusalem on the plain of Ono. Now, if you may remember... Tyler pointed out when he preached on this passage, that should have been the first clue that they were up to no good. Nothing good happens on the plane of, oh, no. This was merely a ploy to slow down Nehemiah's project, per perhaps to kidnap him or to murder him, to get him, get him out of the way. Nehemiah refused to stop the work and to go to the meeting. Now, his words were classic. He says, I am carrying on a great project here and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Now, later, that same people tried to frighten him with rumors of a plot on his life. And, and Nehemiah replied, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Now, it's that courageous, self-aware attitude to life that I commend to you. Paul's opening question, first person, shall I go on sinning that grace may abound? You should be able to answer, how can such a one as I do it? I, who have died to sin and have been made alive to God in Christ Jesus. Because that's what's happened to you if you are a Christian. You have been removed from your former state to another. You're no longer an, in Adam. You, you are in Christ. You have been, been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Your job is to reckon it so, to count on it, to consider it. You must say, a person like me has better things to do than to keep sinning. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful for just what your word reveals, uh, not only about yourself, but about us. And so, Father, we have some words before us that, that seem difficult. Uh, they don't necessarily fit our experience perfectly, but, Father, your word says that it is true. If we are in Christ, we have died to sin, and we've been made alive to God in Christ Jesus God, I pray that you would help us to understand this, help us to grasp it, to run with it, Father, to do battle against Satan and everything that he throws against us every day, that we might live a life that is pleasing to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you're not, if you're, if you're not a believer, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, then a lot of what I've said this morning doesn't make a lot of sense. I went through a whole page of stuff of talking about before we thought this and now we think this. And so right now, you know, you, you don't have Christ. This stuff may not make sense to you and that's okay. But if there's anything in you that's churning and going, hey, 
I'm not sure what he's talking about, but I feel something. Don't run from that. Don't run away from that. Run to it. I think that David was known as a man after God's own heart because when he got confronted with sin, he didn't run from God. He ran to Him. If you're being convicted maybe of the sin in your life or just the fact that you've been out there trying to find satisfaction in the world. I said we've all tried it. We've all tried a million different things, haven't we? And, and I promise you, this world will offer you a million more things to try. And you, but at the end of every one of those little rainbows is not a pot of gold, is it? It's a pot of disappointment. It, it's a pot of uh, you know, unrealized potential. The significance wasn't in it. It's really not that important. That's what you come to find out. If, if you're in that place, let me tell you, God is working on your heart through His Holy Spirit. Don't run from it. Run to it. It's very simple. You have offended God in your sin. It, it, that's just, just, He made you. <laughs> he created you. He has certain rights. In fact, He has all rights over your life. It's, it's that life of sin that has separated you from God. You need to be reconciled to God. That's the first thing I mentioned this morning for believers. We've been reconciled. If you haven't been reconciled to God, there's only one way to do it, and that's Jesus. I, I did a funeral, a graveside service on, on Friday. And, of course, one of the passages I used was John 14, uh, 1 through 6. But verse 6, Jesus tells Thomas, uh, he said unto him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. you got to come through Jesus. You ask God to forgive you of your sins. You turn from your sin, and you trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We're kind of geared. We're wired to trust ourselves, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to take care of ourselves, to fix our own problems. This is a problem you cannot fix on your own. Only Jesus can. And he took care of that some 2,000 years ago by taking on the sin of the world. So I encourage you today, if you don't know Christ, come to Him. He's waiting. <laughs> he is waiting. If you're a believer, I hope that you've been encouraged to understand that, yes, Paul talks about this having died to sin as something that has had, it's an indicative statement, it's a truth, and it's in our past. It's, re it's referring to a couple things. It's referring to Christ's death on the cross, but then when we come to Christ, in our spiritual life, we have died to sin. Now, as I said, our lives don't often look like that, do it. How many of you are in here feel sinless? I'm going to shrink right down here as I raise my hand so I don't get struck by lightning. No, we don't feel that way, but Paul says it is true. And if you're going to do what he says in next, well, no, I just thought of this. While I'm thinking of it, I'll interrupt. Next week, John and Molly are going to be with us. They're back from Malawi. Uh, missionaries, they'll be here. They'll have the service next week. So then the next week's Thanksgiving, then Christmas. It may be January till we get to this again. But what Paul says next, the only way that we're going to have any success in doing what Paul says in these next few commands is to understand that, yes, I've died to sin. I'm alive to God. Two different worlds. And you need to reckon yourself to be part of that world with Christ. That's for believers. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.